Okay, so we have been uh, going through uh, our series on how to read and interpret and understand the Bible. And of course, we have spent uh, the majority of our time sort of uh, thinking through the, the narrative of Scripture and in particular looking at the covenants and how that narrative is unfolding, how God's uh, promises are being given and then being fulfilled. And, and I've tried to spend uh, a, a, a lot of time sort of uh, unpacking the, the relationship between the various covenants, especially as we've seen them unfolded in, in the Old Testament. And, and I want to do that uh, again tonight as we are finishing up uh, looking at the promise of the new covenant from the vantage point of the Old Testament, what the prophets uh, said was, was going to come in this new covenant that the Lord would, would make. We looked at uh, the, some passages in Jeremiah. We looked uh, at our last meeting at some in Ezekiel. And, and now our focus is going to be uh, in Isaiah. And of course, Isaiah actually has a lot to say about uh, the, the new covenant. Uh, he doesn't explicitly call it uh, the new covenant. There are, um, there are some other terms that are used, uh, one of which that we'll see from Isaiah 54 is the covenant of peace, which is the same language that uh, we saw Ezekiel uh, use. Um, and, and, and again, there's, there's additional chapters which will unpack some of the things that are going to take place uh, within this covenant throughout the rest of Isaiah. Uh, but we're not going to look at all of these different passages. We're going to really focus on chapter 54, and, and mainly because I think 54 sort of uh, gives us some more uh, information, some more pictures, some more details about uh, how the new covenant is going to relate to these prior covenants uh, that we've seen uh, before, particularly the, the Abrahamic and, uh, and the, uh, the Davidic covenant. Uh, so, so again, we're going to uh, continue our study or finish up um, our study through the covenants from the Old Testament by uh, looking at Isaiah uh, to, tonight. Now, um, I think it's worth stating at the beginning that the first half of Isaiah uh, has largely addressed the fact that Israel and Judah have broken God's covenant, the Sinai covenant or the Mosaic covenant, and, uh, and now they're coming under the curses of the law. And uh, these curses will involve them being defeated by their enemies, uh, particularly the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire with uh, Israel and then Judah respectively. And subsequently, uh, their defeat will lead to their exile and being uh, cast out of the land of Canaan. That is, that is largely what the first half of the book, basically chapters 1 to 37, is dealing with. Now, of course, uh, throughout, there, there are uh, glorious promises that are uh, sprinkled uh, throughout, uh, but, but primarily the, the, the focus is on sort of everything that's leading up to these, these exiles, uh, uh, excuse me, with Israel and, and Judah. The second half of the book, basically from chapter 38 and on, largely concerns what will happen after the exile. And uh, this is where we find the multiple servant songs uh, from like chapter 42 and on. And, and uh, sometimes 
As you, as you read through this section, the servant of the Lord uh, will refer to the whole nation of Israel, and uh, sometimes it refers to uh, just a single individual. And uh, this has led, of course, to, to much confusion, much debate among people, among different uh, theological traditions, among different uh, scholars. Uh, Jewish scholars especially argue that the suffering, uh, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 uh, is about the nation. This is about the, the, the whole nation of Israel. Uh, of course, even though uh, the servant dies and atones for the sins of the nation, right? I mean, I think as you, as you make your way through that chapter, it, it becomes very clear uh, this isn't the nation because it's the nation, it's, it's God's people who are being redeemed. It's God's people. It's, it's the nation whose sins are being borne by this servant. Uh, but, but sometimes the, the, the argument is made based on the fact that in prior chapters where you find references to the servant of the Lord, uh, sometimes the servant of the Lord can refer to, to the nation as, as a whole. Um, now, um, I think if you're reading, you're reading these chapters, basically from 42 to uh, 53, if your reading of these chapters is informed by the first half of the book, as it should be, uh, this is actually uh, not all that big of a conundrum. Uh, the fact that you can have a uh, the servant as a reference to the whole nation and uh, to an individual. This is really not that big of a, a conundrum because, of course, one of the promises that is given earlier in the book of Isaiah is that the Davidic king is coming. And uh, a king, uh, of course, is an individual, right? It, but it's both. A, a king can be both an individual and a representative for an entire people. That's, in essence, what a king does. And, and of course, throughout the, the Old Testament, uh, the judgments that come upon the nations of Israel and Judah are largely always attributed to the obedience or disobedience to the king. So, Israel comes under judgment because Jeroboam has led the nation into idolatry. Um... Israel is spared from immediate judgment uh, because of the reforms of a king like Josiah. A lot of the times, all throughout Israel's history, God is dealing with the nation through its representative king. And in the beginning of the book of Isaiah, we we are given these many promises about this coming Davidic king who will be both an individual uh, and will represent the people and will be identified uh, with the nation itself. Uh, Now, of course, we don't have a monarch ourselves, so sometimes it can be uh, somewhat difficult for us to grasp this concept. Uh, But, of course, um, I do think we, we can understand it, especially from other places and other theological truths from Scripture. Uh, We understand, for example, that Adam was a king. He was given a command to exercise dominion over the entire world. We we saw early 
on when we were looking at that initial sort of creation covenant made with Adam. Uh, that part of being made in the image of God connotes ideas of royalty, right? So, so Adam is a kingly figure commanded to have dominion over the earth, and he also serves as our representative so that when Adam sinned, we all sinned in him. We all fell in him, and we inherit the guilt of his judgment. And likewise, we understand that Jesus is our king, right? He is the one who represents us. His life becomes our life. His righteousness becomes our righteousness as it is imputed to us. His life of obedience becomes ours received by faith. He represents us before God. And so we understand the basic idea of a single individual representing the whole. And and that's really, I think, helpful to keep in mind as you go through the the various servant songs in the the second half of the book of Isaiah. Uh, There is a servant who is sometimes referred to as an individual and sometimes referred to as a nation. And these two references are not always mutually exclusive. Well, within this larger context, of course, we have the beautiful song of the suffering servant at the end of chapter 52 and into 53. And we learn that this servant will die an atoning death. He will bear the iniquity of his people. He will be rejected by his people. He will be crushed by the Lord. He will be like a lamb led to slaughter. But we're also told in verse 10 that when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. Right? So, so on the one hand, he's going to die. He's going to bear iniquity. He's going to be led to slaughter like a lamb. He's going to be rejected by his people, crushed by the Lord. He's going to die. He's going to be a sacrificial offering as well. But then he's going to live. His days will be lengthened. He will be, as we know from the rest of Scripture, resurrected, of course, by necessity. And he will see his offspring. He will have a people who belong to him and who are of his seed, his offspring. This then leads us, these these promises, these descriptions about what this suffering servant is going to do, this is what then leads us into chapter 54. And one of the Uh, main passages that that needs to be considered from Isaiah when thinking about this new covenant to come. Um, Now, chapter 54 is linked closely with chapter 53, not just by the fact that it follows 53 numerically, because sometimes throughout the prophets, you can have a chapter that follows another 
and yet it's talking about a different time period. It's talking about a different event. It may be rehashing things that have been discussed prior. So it's, it's not just that you know, 54 following 53 means that it's, it's linked together, uh, but rather we, we do find that it is linked together with, verse, with chapter 53, both in terms of some of the words that are used and the ideas which tells us that essentially chapter 54 is coming as a result of the works that are described to take place by the suffering servant in chapter 53. It it comes, 54 comes as a result of what the servant does in 53. So just to flesh this out a little bit more, show you some of these connections here. Isaiah 53, verse 11 to 12, speaks of the many, the many who will be accounted righteous. Verse 11, the many, verse 12, who will have a divided portion, the many whose sins are borne by the servant, verse 12. And then immediately in chapter 54, verse 12. One, the same word for many occurs again with reference to the barren woman who will have many children. It says there, for the children of the desolate one will be more or many than the children of her who is married. It's the same same word that's used there. Many with reference to the children of her who is married. Uh, In addition to this, the offspring of the servant that he will see in chapter 53, verse 10, in chapter 54, verse 3, are the offspring who will possess the nations. There's a continuation of these these same subjects, these same offspring, right? Uh, The Lord... uh, The suffering servant will see his offspring, chapter 53, chapter 54. Those offspring will possess the nations. In chapter 53, verse 11 again, the many are made righteous. And in chapter 54, down in verse 14, the city of Zion is established in righteousness. And in chapter 54, verse 17, their righteousness or their vindication from the accusations of their enemies comes from the Lord. And then, of course, the work of the servant, singular, in chapter 53, is what then leads, in chapter 54, to the servants, plural, of the Lord having a heritage from God. So we have all of these connections between these two chapters that link them together so that we are to understand that the work of the servant in chapter 53 results in the calls for singing and rejoicing that follows and begins chapter 54. It's like as, as we're moving through this this text and we read about these wonderful things that this servant is going to do we're then called to 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 rejoice why because the things that he's accomplished is now going to bring about these things that we're reading uh, reading about in in uh, in chapter 54 
Now, as for chapter 54 itself, uh, this chapter can be divided into three parts. First, in verses 1 to 3, there's this, uh, there's this miracle of, of the barren woman having many children. Uh, in response to the work of the suffering servant, we read beginning in verse 1 again, it says there, Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing, and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Now, um, throughout this chapter, especially in verses 4 to 10, there's this theme of marriage that is used as a metaphor for covenants. God's people are described as a widowed young woman in verses 4 to 7, whom the Lord has cast away. Why? Because she's violated the marriage covenant between herself and the Lord, her husband. And of course, in this, this context, this is a reference, and, and not only in this sort of literary context, but just historically, this is a reference to the Mosaic Covenant. Right? God's people, the people of Israel, were His bride. They had entered into a marriage covenant with Him, and they broke the covenant, and they committed adultery. They, they prostituted themselves with all of these other foreign gods and all of these foreign nations and so now they've been, they've been cast away and divorced. When, when the Lord sends them into exile, he's, he's casting them away. And so likewise here in verse 1, the reference to the woman who is married refers to the Mosaic covenant or, or Israel and her children as they were constituted at Sinai. And I think this is also how Paul right, understands this very same passage in Galatians 4. Right? The, the married woman represents Sinai, but the barren woman is an allusion to the Abrahamic covenant, and specifically Sarah. She's the woman who can't bear children. You remember that from, from the story, right? She's, she's old in age. There's no children that she can have. And so Paul also, because he's, he has in mind, and Isaiah has in mind here, this, this barren woman, and he's thinking of, of Sarah at the same time, he, he then makes the, the connection to Hagar uh, as well in that, that passage. And, and Hagar pointing to Sinai, the, the present Jerusalem, the the present national people of Israel, the, the people who are striving uh, to be righteous before God by works of the law. But the point in Isaiah is that this barren woman should rejoice because her tents are going to have to be enlarged. They're going to have to be expanded greatly. She's going to have to increase her living space. Why? 
Well, because she's going to have offspring and they're going to become numerous. Her offspring will possess the nations. Her offspring will become greater than the offspring who was married. And the point is that because of the work of the suffering servant, the Abrahamic covenant is going to be fulfilled. And its fulfillment is going to far outshine that of the Mosaic covenant. The the fulfillment of that Abrahamic covenant is going to produce far more children than that of Hagar, that of the Mosaic covenant, that which was only made up of those national ethnic people of Israel. The children of her who is married, her who is in covenant with God, the nation of Israel is certainly vast and it certainly grew to a large extent. But the children of promise, these children of the barren woman will be far, far greater. And to them belongs all the nations. Then when we come to verses 4 to 10, we read of a new marriage with a new covenant that will come to God's people. Verse 4 exhorts the people of God not to fear because their shame will not last forever. And their shame here is explained as widowhood. They become widows. And not just because their husband died. They become widows for a shameful reason. They were once married, and now they're not. And why is that? Well, it's because they, are, they were deserted by their husband, the Lord here in this passage, and deserted as a result of their shameful behavior, as a result of their covenant violation. In verse 5, God here identifies himself as their maker, as their husband, a reference again to their covenant relationship with him. And in verse 6, he says that he's going to call them, but he's going to call them like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. So, So Israel has become a widow. Verse 7, for a brief moment, the Lord deserted them. This this speaks of of that that 70 years of exile that they're going to uh, uh, go through when the Lord's judgment comes upon them. They had sinned against God. They had broken His covenant time and time again, right? It wasn't just one single occasion. It was practically their entire history. God, for many generations, had borne with his unfaithful bride patiently. Uh, His name had been blasphemed among the nations because of them. They were an unfaithful bride prostituting themselves to other gods and to other nations. And so God finally leaves them. He, He casts them 
away. He, he divorces her because she has violated the covenant again and again. And so Israel is widowed. But here we find that he's not going to cast them off forever. He's going to return. He will have compassion on them. And he will show them, he says, everlasting love. He's going to go after his wayward, unfaithful bride. He's going to call her back. And he's going to clean her of her shame. And it's at this point that we read of this new covenant that he's going to enter into with them. If you look with me again at verses 9 to 10, notice what it says there. It says, this is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Now this, this covenant here is called a covenant of peace because it reconciles God to his people. It is a, a covenant that establishes peace uh, between them, where there, there, was a, there was a broken covenant, there was enmity between them, God was angry with them, now there's going to be peace between them. And this covenant, unlike the Mosaic covenant, will not come with threats of curses. It will not come with the possibility of God's people turning against him and then God in his anger deserting them and casting them into exile. Now this covenant, we read, will be eternal and perhaps even more importantly, will be marked by the fact that his steadfast love will never depart from them. Right? In the same way that God swore to Noah that he would never again flood the earth, so also will this covenant be such that his anger and wrath will never fall upon them again. Now, of course, the only way that that could happen, of course, is if the sins of his people are atoned for. Right? If, if their sins are not dealt with, there's no possible way that God could not be angry at his people. There'd be no way that his wrath could never come against them. Their sins have to be atoned for, which is why Isaiah 53 is what precedes this promise here. It is Isaiah 53 and the work of the suffering servant that makes it even a possibility for God to enter into a covenant peace that lasts forever and in which he will never be angry with his people again and will rather uh, demonstrate his steadfast love to them uh, forever. 
the suffering servant is the one who bears the iniquity of his people and which establishes the basis for which this covenant of peace in which God's anger is eternally propitiated can even exist. Then we come to the third section in verses 11 to 17 which speaks of God's people, the the woman, also using another image here, uh, as a city. Probably the the most fitting reference here in the context is the city of Zion. This is the the city where God's throne uh, is, the the, the central capital of of the people of God. But but here they they are referred to, not not only as a, a woman, but as a city. They're going to become a city that is rebuilt and secured and fortified forever. Uh, Verse 11 begins by speaking of the city at one time being storm-tossed and not comforted. She She was constantly bombarded with violent storms and it left her in ruins. And this probably refers to how often, as a result of God's judgments, Jerusalem, or Zion, was attacked by foreign nations because of their sin, and of course, eventually even defeated. Much of their history had, had been one in which they had faced the real possibility of being destroyed again and again and again. And Of course, we see that even taking place in the beginning of of the book of Isaiah, where the Assyrians, though they do not, uh, though though they're not the the ones who eventually exile uh, uh, all of Judah and and the citizens of Jerusalem, uh, they defeat everything in Judah except Jerusalem. They laid siege. They laid siege to. Jerusalem. They, they were bombarding her, her walls, right? The history of this city had been one in which for generation after generation it was storm-tossed. There was a constant threat of destruction which ultimately results in a final destruction at the hands of the Babylonians. But in the future, this is not going to be the case. Zion is going to be established, shall be built by the hand of God himself. Her walls will be built with precious stones. God is the one who's going to build her. She'll be immovable. But more importantly, she'll be immovable. She'll never suffer judgment again. Why? Because her children, her citizens, will all be believers. Verse 13. All your children, again, speaking of the city, a picture of God's people, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. This is very much like what Jeremiah later speaks about. All of those in the new covenant will know the Lord. 
the citizenry of the city of God will be those who are taught by God himself. And of course, Jesus quotes this very verse with reference to those who come to him as a result of the divine work of God, does he not? This is, this is what he references directly in John chapter 6, you'll remember. John chapter 6, of course, is where Jesus is speaking of the Father giving to the Son a people. John 6, 37, Jesus says there, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The, the, The very people who are given to the Son by the Father are those who are never cast out. And I think it's always worth reminding ourselves that there's no middle category there of people who are given to the Lord and yet who eventually are cast out because they they fall away or something like that. No, that's not what he says. All those that the Father gives to me will come to me and they will never be cast out. And then further down in verse 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So, to come to Jesus, you need a divine work of God. You need God to supernaturally invade your dead heart. You need him to awaken it, to revive it, to call you out of your deadness. And that's what God does for his people. He opens our eyes. He opens our ears. He gives us a new heart. He, he allows us to see and behold the beauty of Jesus, to see him as he truly is. And when he draws you, what do you do? You come. His, his work is effectual. Right? There, is no, there is no calling by God that does not produce the result he intends for it. When he draws you, you come. When he gives you a new heart, you respond in faith. When, you, when he opens your eyes, you see Jesus as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords, and you bow the knee to the King in praise of the King. This is what happens. He draws, you come, you believe. Then Jesus explains this this whole idea further by saying this in verse 45. He says, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Our text. How do you know? How do you know if you're taught by God? Well, the argument that Jesus is making here is you know that you're taught by God when you come to me. You hear the gospel. You hear the call of God. You respond in faith. You come to me and you evidence by that belief, by that trust in me, by that coming to me, that you have been taught by 
God. And Jesus says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So, back in Isaiah 54, God's city, the city Zion, is going to consist of those who are all taught by Him. Those who come to Christ. Those who believe in the Lord and who are accounted righteous because of the work of the suffering servant, who is Christ. And so the text continues, and, and Isaiah says that the city shall be established in righteousness. And any enemy that comes against her, unlike in the days of the Mosaic Covenant, any enemy who comes against her, they're going to be destroyed. And their vindication will come from the Lord. So, just to summarize here, right, we have this, this beautiful passage in Isaiah 53 that describes the work of the suffering servant. Right? It is because of his suffering that God's people will have their sins washed away. And furthermore, the suffering of the servant is going to bring about a day where the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in an even greater sense than it ever was before. Sarah's offspring will be far greater than Hagar's offspring or the children of the Sinai covenant. A new covenant will be made, a covenant that endures forever and establishes peace between God and His once disobedient people. And because of this covenant, and because of the one who establishes the covenant, the city of Zion will be built up and established. The capital of the Davidic king will be established forever. Right? Here again, we find that the making of and the inauguration of the new covenant will bring about the fulfillment of all God's promises and covenants that were made before. And again, I just want to stress that because it's one of the things that we've, we've seen throughout. We saw it in Psalm 72. We saw it again last week in Ezekiel is that when this new covenant is established, it will be that new covenant itself that brings about the fulfillment of all of God's promises made before, made to Abraham, made to David. The, the Davidic son's throne will be established. The, the offspring of Abraham that will be more numerous than the stars of the sky will, will take place. And the nations will be blessed in Kim. And again, if you remember from Psalm 72, the nations will also be blessed in that Davidic king who himself brings about the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So again, several, several things going on here, but I think Isaiah is just sort of bringing all of these, these ideas together about the relationship, these various covenants and how God's saving works that he's going to do after the exile are going to bring about these uh, fulfillments. 
Now, um, as I said, there are, there are other passages in Isaiah. Um, it, there's even one in, in Isaiah 55 in the very next chapter that continues to speak about uh, the, 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 uh, the things that the new covenant is, is going to bring about. And Isaiah 55 focuses in on that, um, uh, that aspect of the Davidic covenant being fulfilled uh, in it. But again, I think if, you, if, we, if we understand that, that Isaiah 54 uh, passage, uh, that, that basically summarizes the, uh, the message of Isaiah when it comes to God's uh, saving works in this future covenant uh, after the exile. So I'm going to stop there, and um, uh, we'll have a moment. If, if you want any, any questions, anything we can talk about further, and, uh, and then, like I said as well, this will be our, our, our last evening. Uh, we won't meet through December, uh, but when we pick up again, um, we'll probably start looking at uh, some of the uh, specific questions as it relates to the relationship between the Old and the New Covenant, and, and we'll look at a lot of uh, New Testament passages uh, at that point as well. So let me, uh, let me just stop there. And